Hello and welcome to this podcast from Conway Hall, London, where ethics matter. To find out more about our programme of talks and concerts, visit conwayhall.org.uk or find us on social media. In this online talk, recorded in January 2021, philosopher John Sellers unpacks the basic arguments of Epicureanism, distilling the essence of an ancient philosophy that speaks with increasing urgency to our troubled times. I'm going to talk about the Greek philosopher Epicurus and what we might be able to learn from him today. I've worked mainly on another ancient Greek philosophy, Stoicism, um, over the years, and the Stoics and the Epicureans were contemporaries in ancient Athens. Um, so one question that people might ask, people that are familiar with things that I've done in the past, is why Epicurus? Why have I turned to Epicurus on this occasion? And um, so I just wanted to, to make a quick comment on this, a kind of personal comment, if you like. Why Epicurus? But in particular, why Epicurus for me? Um, and I suppose it began when I was first studying philosophy, probably it's going to be the early 90s, so almost 30 years ago. And I came across by chance um, a copy of Lucretius, um, the great Epicurean poet who writes his book on the nature of things or on the nature of the universe. And I read this book alongside um, another uh, Penguin classic that I bought at the same time, The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, the famous Stoic. And these two books really spoke to me. I found them both really, really interesting at the time. And as things have gone on, I've ended up working much more on Stoicism. But that love of Lucretius from an early stage in my um, uh, philosophical career, if you like, has really stuck with me. So I've always had a soft spot for the Epicureans. And another reason is, although I ended up focusing my own work more on Stoicism, there were always a few things about Stoicism, particularly when I first encountered it, that I wasn't entirely comfortable with. So for instance, the Stoics are um, pantheists, they believe in a God, which they identify with nature, and they think that this God providentially orders nature and everything is for the best and that this is the best of all possible worlds. And those certainly weren't beliefs that I particularly um, chimed with. And I've kind of um, thought of interesting ways in which we might be able to reinterpret those um, as I've worked on Stoicism over the years. But at first glance, the Epicurean approach to understanding nature seemed much more in tune with where I was than with the Stoic approach. And similarly, the Stoics talk a lot about virtue and the importance of acting virtuously. And again, my earlier um, teenage self wasn't necessarily inspired by ideas of virtue um, at that point, whereas the Epicurean approach seemed much more in tune with where I was. Um, and where was I? I mean, I think I would have described myself as a sort of enlightenment atheist in many ways, wanting to try to um, escape from outmoded superstitious beliefs um, and, and to think much more like a free thinker, if we like. And so for all these reasons, um, Epicurus and Epicureanism connected with me from the very beginning. So I'm really pleased to finally have the chance to, to write something about Epicureanism uh, now. So, 
who was Epicurus? Let me just say a little bit about who we're dealing with. So um, Epicurus, his parents were Athenians. Um, they settled on one of the Greek islands. He was born and brought up there. Um, and he moved around a number of, of different Greek islands. He lived on the island of Lesbos for a while, um, met some friends along the way, started to teach philosophy. And then at a certain point, he and his friends all moved to Athens to the ancestral home of his family, even if he'd not um, lived there as a child. And there he sets up his philosophy school. Um, he buys a patch of land just outside the walls of uh, the city of Athens. And this patch of land becomes known as the Garden. And Epicurus and a group of, of fellow philosophers live together within this garden in uh, an, an enclosed community. You might imagine it as a kind of a secular monastery where they live together and try to follow the principles of Epicurean philosophy. So Epicurus himself starts the whole thing off and we're talking around 300 BC, that kind of time. And this garden community that he develops just outside the walls of Athens, it flourishes for a good couple of centuries. So roughly from around 300 BC down to the, the early part of the first century BC, we should say. And at that point, I think it's probably, uh, it's probably destroyed. So Epicurean philosophy flourishes in ancient Greece and in Athens in particular. By the first century BC, um, obviously the Romans are on the scene and we start to see a number of uh, Romans take up Epicurean ideas. And this is where Lucretius comes in. So we don't know anything about Lucretius as an individual. We've, we've literally just got the name. We've got almost no biographical information, but we've got this incredible poem that he writes, De Rerum Natura, On the Nature of Things, in which he writes in Latin verse, an account of Epicurean philosophy. And fragments of a masterwork by Epicurus called On Nature have um, been recovered and um, kind of scholarly analysis has shown that um, what Lucretius writes in his Latin poem follows very closely the contents and the order of that lost work by Epicurus. So we can be confident, I think, that what Luc Lucretius presents in his great poem is an accurate account of what Epicurus himself would have thought. So that's the really long, important Epicurean text that's been influential, particularly in the early modern period. And then a third Epicurean that I want to mention briefly is um, uh, a chap called Philodemus. Philodemus was also around in the first century BC, around the same time as Lucretius. They may have even known each other, although we don't know for sure. Both are likely to have been alive and active in the Bay of Naples area in the first century BC. Philodemus was originally from a city called Gadara in the, the Middle East, um, modern day Jordan. Um, he traveled to Athens, studied in Athens at the Epicurean Garden, um, and then came over to Italy and settled in, in the Bay of Ney, the, the Bay of Naples um, area. So that so Epicurus, Lucretius, Philodemus are kind of the key figures, and we've we've got text for all of them that we can we can read today. Now, I just mentioned Philodemus. Um, 
we've got a number of texts of his that survive, and there's one in particular that I want to mention. Um, and it's known as the tetrapharmakos, the fourfold cure or the fourfold remedy, which um, we took as the title for um, my short book on this material. Um, it was discovered in a papyrus fragment um, that was buried in a villa in Herculaneum, not far from Pompeii, buried in the same eruption of Mount Vesuvius that, that buried Pompeii. And a number of papyrus scrolls were carbonized in that um, eruption and have been excavated and deciphered. And um, the image that you can see on the slide there is in fact a pencil drawing of the text that was seen when someone unrolled one of these papyrus scrolls. And not long after they'd managed to transcribe this text, the, the scroll literally crumbled into, into pieces um, because it was so fragile. So all we've got left is this early 19th century pencil drawing preserving these few letters of Greek. And what it gives us is this short text, the tetrapharmakos, the fourfold cure. And as you can see, it says, don't fear God, don't worry about death. What's good is easy to get, and what's terrible is easy to endure. And this Philodemus presents as a very short, memorable summary of some of the key ideas in Epicurean philosophy. And we'll, we'll come back to some of these in a moment. Don't fear God. Don't be anxious about divine punishment. Don't worry about death. What you need in order to live a good life is very easy to get and, and difficulties you can, you can cope with easily enough. And Epicurus thinks that these are some of the things that concern people most. These are the sorts of things that keep people awake at night. And so these are the sorts of things that we need some kind of remedy for if we want to live a good life. Um, you can see immediately that what he's talking about here are different forms of what we might call today psychological anxiety. It's different anxieties about things that might happen to us in the future that he seems to be most concerned about here. And I'll come back to that thought later on as well. Um, we might not be particularly concerned about fear of a, a vengeful God um, at the moment, but I take it that fear about death is something that um, can be a significant concern for people still today. Now, central to the Epicurean approach is the idea that if we want to avoid these sorts of anxieties, we need to understand how the world works. Um, a core theme in Epicurean philosophy is the idea that superstitions cause anxieties. Superstitions are, such as a belief in a vengeful God that might punish us if we don't do the right thing. Um, these are the sorts of things that can disturb people or certainly disturb people in the ancient world, according to Epicurus. Um, and the only way that we can overcome those sorts of anxieties is to really understand how the world works. We need to do physics. We need to try to understand nature. And this is what we see played out at great length in Lucretius's poem on the nature of things, where he goes through a 
scientific, naturalistic, materialist account of absolutely everything, of how the universe was formed, how the earth was created, how early humans lived and developed, how civilization developed, um, how our minds and bodies work, how we perceive things. Everything you could possibly want explained is laid out there for us um, uh, according to the principles of atomism, which was the, um, the type of materialist philosophy that the Epicureans subscribed to. So they claim, following an earlier Greek philosopher, um, Democritus, that everything that exists in the world is made up of tiny little atoms that float around within an, inf within an infinite void. They bang into one another, they glue together and make larger aggregates, which are the objects that we can see in the physical world. There's no order to this. There's no design. There's no divine mind um, orchestrating the whole thing. It's just these little bits of dead matter floating around, banging into each other. Everything that we know, everything that we experience is just the contingent product of these atomistic interactions. And Epicurus thinks that if we can understand nature in those terms, then we'll be able to escape all those sorts of superstitious beliefs that might otherwise disturb us. Okay, so that very briefly about um, the physics, I don't say a huge amount about the physics, I want to move on and focus really on Epicurean ethics, which is, if you like, uh, our main topic for today. And as Deborah said at the, uh, in the introduction, when we hear the word Epicurean today, we tend to think of someone who enjoys fine food and wine and that kind of physical indulgence. Um, and that image of hedonism, of hedonistic enjoyment of physical pleasures is by no mean a new one. We find that in antiquity. In fact, we find a group of hedonistic philosophers, um, the Cyrenaics, who believed precisely that what we ought to do is maximize our pleasure, in particular, maximize physical pleasure. This is the route to a good life. So wine, women and song, decadent excess. This is what you should do if you want to live well. That was the Cyrenaic view of hedonism in antiquity. And they're around a little bit before Epicurus. And when Epicurus comes along, he also wants to champion hedonism. He also wants to suggest that it's pleasure that's the key to living a good life. But he wants to present hedonism in very different terms. He wants to propose a very simple life of modest pleasures in which it's not about more and more and more and enjoyment to excess. And in order for him to present this more nuanced and sophisticated account of hedonism, he's going to need to make some important distinctions between different types of pleasure. And that's what I want to, um, to talk about now. So the first really important distinction that he draws is between what we might call active pleasures and static pleasures. 
Um, in the Greek, the active pleasures are the kinetic pleasures, the move, moving pleasures, if you like, and the static pleasures are called catastimatic. We don't need to worry about the technical terms. So to illustrate this for you very easily, um, an active pleasure would be something like eating, right? Um, the pleasure that you get when you're in the process of eating, you enjoy that, you get something from that. And that's what the, the Cyrenaic hedonists the, um, uh, uh, would have thought pleasure is, right? And if we think about that popular image of hedonism, we're thinking of active pleasure like eating or drinking. What Epicurus wants to say is that there's another type of pleasure, static pleasure, and an example of a static pleasure would be the contentment you feel when you've finished eating and you're no longer hungry. And Epicurus thinks that that's what we're really after. When we eat food, we might enjoy the process of eating food, but that's not why we're eating food. We're not eating it in order to enjoy the process, in order to enjoy the process. We're eating it in order not to be hungry. We're eating in order to reach that state of contentment when we've had enough. And when we've had enough, we won't need any more. So it's not as if you enjoy the process of eating and you just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat until you explode, right? Or it certainly ought not to be like that. You eat and you enjoy the process. You then reach this state of static pleasure when you're no longer hungry and you're content and you don't eat any more. And if you did eat more, rather than increase your pleasure, you would start to generate pain. You'd start to have indigestion. You would, it would be a counterproductive process. So the thought is that once you reach that state of not being hungry, more and more and more won't add anything extra to the quality of the pleasure that you're experiencing. And so there's a really important distinction at work here that's worth stressing, I think. Um, the first is that that active pleasure of eating is something quantitative, right? It can increase and increase. But the static pleasure, the contentment of not being hungry, that's a qualitative state. And once you've reached that qualitative state, you can't improve it or increase it by adding any more. And that's the type of pleasure that Epicurus thought we ought to aim at. A state of contentment in which you don't need any more. So that's the first really big distinction. And there's another quick um, footnote I should add to this as well, which is Epicurus thinks that pleasure is effectively the same as, or the, this, this state of, of static pleasure, I should say, is effectively the same as not being in pain. So not being hungry, it, we, we might take as an, ex, an instance of not being in pain. Epicurus doesn't think that there's any kind of neutral state between pleasure or pain. 
if you're experiencing pleasure, you're not in pain, simply not being in pain is itself an instance of pleasure. There's never a point in which you're not really feeling anything at all and you're just neutral. And so, again, the goal is not more and more pleasure, more and more food and drink. The goal is to not be in pain. That's really what we're all after. And so I hope you can see that in those two different ways, you end up with an image of a pleasant life that's very, very different from the, the modern notion of hedonism, in which you just have more and more and more pleasure um, um, without limit. There's a very clear limit here. Okay, so that's the first distinction that Epicurus wants to make in order to show how his version of a life of pleasure is quite different from the decadent um, hedonism of the, the Cyrenaics who were around um, uh, just before him. The second distinction he wants to make as well is between um, physical pleasures and what we might call psychological pleasures. So I've been talking about eating and not being hungry. Obviously, that's just um, 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 a physical pleasure. And um, Epicurus wants to draw, I can um, draw a distinction between physical pleasures on the one hand and psychological pleasures on the other. And what he wants to suggest is that, in fact, the quality of our lives is determined by psychological pleasures much more than physical pleasures. And it's the psychological pleasures that really shape our lives. And so picking up on the comment that I was making a moment ago about the goal really being to reach a state of not being in pain, not being in hungry. Similarly, when it comes to psychological pleasures, the goal is to reach a state of not being in psychological pain, to not be anxious, to not be worried. The goal, ultimately, is to reach a state of psychological contentment rather than enjoying active physical pleasures like more food, more drink. So that adds a, another, another way in which Epicurus's hedonism will differ from that Cyrenaic hedonism. The goal is psychological tranquility, a static psychological state of no longer being worried about anything at all. That's the goal of the Epicurean life. And in order to help us get to that goal, another thing that Epicurus does is he does an analysis of the sorts of things that we tend to pursue, the sorts of things that we desire. And he says that if we can stop and reflect and think about the things that we um, pursue in life, that will enable us to reach this state of psychological contentment or tranquility that he thinks is the key to living a good life. And so he says, whatever it is that you might pursue, that you might think you need, um, it's going to fall into one of three categories. 
it's either going to be something that's natural and necessary, natural but unnecessary, or simply unnatural and unnecessary. So what would be examples of these? Well, natural and necessary would be anything that you need in order to survive. So food, water, shelter, these sorts of things, right? The basics of life, that's what you need in order to live. They're perfectly natural desires and we need them. Often, of course, we don't just pursue the bare basics, but we pursue more fancy, refined versions of them. We don't just want food so that we don't starve. We want nice food. We want variety. We want a nice glass of wine with our meals. We don't just want shelter from the rain, but we want a nice house in a nice part of town. We don't just want clothes to keep us warm. We want nice, fancy clothes from um, expensive shops. And Epicurus is going to put all of those sorts of things into the second category of natural but unnecessary. So our desire for these things arises out of a perfectly natural need, but we go beyond what's merely necessary and, and try to secure something that isn't really required. We could get by without those things. And then into the third category goes literally everything else all that stuff that doesn't actually satisfy a natural need that you have at all, all the other paraphernalia of modern life that we all um, often pursue, but ultimately we don't really need any of it at all. It's unnatural, um, or our desire for it doesn't fulfill a natural need, we might say, and it's all completely unnecessary. So Epicurus thinks if we can do this kind of analysis of the different things that we um, pursue, we um, we'll realise that much of the stuff that we think we need in order to live a good, happy, pleasant life is in fact unnecessary, and we could do without it. And Epicurus thinks that in fact the stuff that we really need, the natural and necessary stuff, is surprisingly easy to secure. Um, you, can, you can survive on re a relatively small income, he would he would say right the the basics aren't that expensive and he thinks and this is the key point he thinks that if we can come to see that if we can come to realize that what we really need is actually very little and very easy to get hold of that's going to massively reduce our anxiety about the future many of our anxieties and concerns he thinks are about our ability to fulfill our needs in the future, worrying about whether we've got enough money, worrying about our jobs, worrying about all of those sorts of things. All of that is ultimately anxiety about whether we can secure what we need in the future. And if we can come to realize that what we need is actually very little and very easy to get hold of, then that will massively reduce that anxiety. And that's obviously central for Epicurus because he thinks that it's psychological tranquility that's the key to living a good life. Okay, so I think, although this is not quite explicit, I think one of the things that comes through from all of this is the thought that we ought to focus our attention very much 
on the present moment. Many of our anxieties and concerns are focused in some way on the future. And we ought not to be so worried about the future. We ought to spend a lot less time thinking about the future, he suggests. Um, that's one thought. And instead of constantly being anxious about the future and what that may or may not bring, he thinks instead we ought to focus our attention on reaching this state of static psychological pleasure uh, uh, in the here and now. So the idea, if you like, is contentment and tranquility in the present moment. And he thinks that this comes from living a very simple, modest life, as I was saying at the beginning. He often describes his own hedonistic lifestyle as bread and water, and occasionally, if he wants to treat himself, and perhaps a small pot of cheese. So a very, very modest um, lifestyle. Um, and of course, there's no reason in principle, based on the, the terms of his philosophy, why he couldn't enjoy a much more decadent life. He couldn't enjoy all sorts of fancy foods and meals and all the other um, pleasures that life brings. And of course, he thinks that those pleasures would be genuinely good things. I take it Epicurus would want to warn us against slipping into that kind of hedonistic lifestyle, because once we start to get a taste for those kinds of physical pleasures, um, the risk is that we'll start to expect them. And if we start to expect them, then when we don't get them, we'll be disappointed. Or we might start to get anxious about whether we're going to be able to continue to get them in the future. So Epicurus's advice is that we keep our physical pleasures very simple and we enjoy the tranquility that comes from knowing that we're always going to be able to secure those. So we don't need to worry about the future in quite the same way that we might have beforehand. Okay, so to kind of summarize the, the, um, the, the key ideas, um, Epicurus is going to argue then that we don't actually need that many material things in order to live a good life. And in particular, knowing that we don't need that many material things is going to reduce our anxiety about the future. And then secondly, um, avoiding pain is more important than pursuing pleasure, he'll argue. It's that static pleasure that's more important than active pleasure. It's not about enjoying fancy meals at fine restaurants. It's about not being hungry. That's the thing that really matters. And finally, it's actually mental or psychological pleasures and pains that are far more significant than physical ones. I mean, we all deal with physical pain from time to time, whether we, you know, whether it be toothache or stubbing our toe or backache or whatever it might be. And none of these things are pleasant. And on the terms of Epicurus's hedonism, they're genuinely bad things, right? But they pass fairly quickly. They don't destroy the quality of your life as a whole. Um, but psychological pain 
anxiety, distress, worry about the future. Those are things that can color the quality of someone's entire life and really um, inhibit their ability to enjoy a good life. So focusing on those psychological pleasures and pains is far more important than worrying about um, the physical pleasures that we might associate with crude hedonism. And right at the end of his life, when Epicurus is dying, he writes a letter to one of his friends. He's, he's quite seriously ill. He's, he's really suffering. Um, he's, he's suffering real physical pain. Um, and again, on the terms of his own philosophy, that's a genuinely bad thing. Um, pain is, physical pain remains a genuinely bad thing, he, he'll, he'll say. But in this letter to one of his friends, he says, well, I am suffering real physical pain, but I can offset that with psychological pleasures. And in particular, as he writes to this old friend, he says, well, I've got the memories of all of those wonderful conversations that we've had in the past. And by reflecting on all those wonderful conversations we've had, that gives me real pleasure. And that psychological pleasure can outweigh the physical pain that I'm having to deal with at the moment. And so overall, I'm still living a pleasant life. Okay, so to, to wrap things up, the last thing I'd like to say is the role that philosophy plays in all of this. One thing that Epicurus and Lucretius are quite adamant about is that philosophy is absolutely essential in order for us to live well. We need philosophy because by understanding the way the world works, we can remove those superstitious beliefs that uh, might generate anxiety in us. And by using philosophy to think about the nature of what's good, what's bad, what's pleasant, um, what's painful, what it is we really do and do not need in order to live well, that's gonna help us enormously too. So we need philosophy. Philosophy's fundamental, Epicurus thinks. And Lucretius in his great poem says that as such, it's the single most important human creation. It's the most important thing that humans have developed throughout their history. And in one great moment, Lucretius says, the invention of philosophy is more important even the, than the invention of farming, right? Of all of the world historic events in the history of humanity, surely the invention of farming is one of the most significant moments when we shift from being nomadic um, hunter-gatherers to um, uh, uh, settled communities. But Lucretia says, no, philosophy is more important than that. And I think one of the things that's going on here is the thought that there's no image, although Epicurus is suggesting a, uh, a very modest, simple life, you might imagine that he, he, he thinks that modern civilization is, if you like, um, overcomplicated life and we ought to go back to a simpler past time. And he is suggesting that we go back to a simpler time in terms of thinking about our needs, but not a simpler time 
intellectually. So for Epicurus and Lucretius, there's no image of a, of a lost um, age in which everything was perfect and noble savages free from the corruptions of modern civilization were perfectly happy. Lucretius is quite insistent the earliest human beings would have been riddled by superstition. They would have been fearful of thunder. They would have worshipped the god as a son. They would have engaged in all sorts of superstitious activities, worried about um, a, a physical phenomena that they didn't really understand. And that those early human beings would have been unable to live a happy life. It's only once we've got a proper understanding of nature and we can escape those superstitious beliefs that we're able really to live happily and gain the sort of con psychological contentment that Epicurus is suggesting. So on the one hand, it's a very modest, simple life that he's describing, but it's one that is intellectually sophisticated because it requires this proper understanding of nature and our place within it. And I will stop there. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, John. That was absolutely fascinating. Bear in mind, John's book, The Fourfold Remedy, Epicurus and the Art of Happiness is available. So when you want to find out more from this talk, that's where you go. Um, we've got Q&A now, so anybody who would like to answer a question, please type it in and I'll uh, come to you in order. You can ask John questions. I'd like to start with one, actually, because I was interested in Epicurus' um, list of, uh, of things we need and their categorization. And it strikes me that uh, status is something that seems to be fairly hardwired into human beings, but it causes us a great deal of distress because we do get un the desire for unnecessary and unnatural things. Um, designer clothes would be a good example. Nobody needs designer clothes. Uh, what would you have to say about dealing with the need for status? Um, yes, that's a good question. I mean, well, I mean, Epicurus is going to be quite insistent that we, we ought not to worry about that at all. There's a, um, a, a very sort of famous Epicurean maxim that a number of, of sources report, which simply two words, and it says, live unnoticed, right? So the, 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 the happy life um, of contentment um, isn't interested in, 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 in making a public show. It isn't interested in uh, clamoring for the opinions of others. And I think we see that in the fact that the Epicureans gather together in this private community. They, they create a little community in their garden of like-minded people. Another thing that Epicurus talks about a lot is friendship and the importance of our relationships with other people. But he describes it as a kind of a mutual support network where you have um, uh, two friends or a group of friends who support each other and help each other out um, in a very practical way, right? Your anxiety about the future is reduced if you know you've got a friend that you can turn to in times of need. And likewise, their anxiety is reduced if they know they can turn to you. That's a very different type of social relationship to the one we might think of when we think about sort of our public reputation and our status, where we're just trying to impress other people, which is a very, obviously, a, a, um, a far more super, superficial relationship. So 
absolutely. They want to use that analysis to show that we ought, in fact, not to worry about status at all. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Conway Hall is a registered charity, and as such, we are reliant on donations, now more than ever. You can learn more about our origins and history, join our mailing list, make a donation, or even become a member of the Ethical Society by visiting conwayhall.org.uk forward slash donation. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you.